Hey, welcome to Race to Academia, brought to you from the Race and Ethnicity Caucus of University of Toronto Graduate Students Union, where we talk to students and professors about race and race-related issues within academia and showcase the academic work and research of racialized graduate students. We will start with an interview and end with a two to three minute student highlight of the research they are conducting in their own words. I'm Joe. And I'm Melon. On this week's episode of Race to Academia, we interview Dr. Tamara Walker, who is an associate professor in the history department at the University of Toronto. Her research interests are on slavery and racial formation in Latin America and how slavery's legacy still has a lasting impact today. After our interview with Dr. Walker, Sunny Choi will tell us about her research. Sunny is a first year's master's student in the Department of Medical Biophysics at the University of Toronto, and she is looking at neurological changes in pediatric acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Here is our interview with Dr. Tamara Walker. Tamara, thank you so much for joining us today on Race to Academia. Thanks for having me. So Joe and I are really looking forward to hearing about your research and experiences, but before we start, uh, we'd like to check in with our guests to see how everyone's doing, especially considering the challenging times we find ourselves in right now. Um, so with that being said, how have you been staying sane during the pandemic? I don't know that I've been staying super sane, but I have been, you know, taking advantage of all of the opportunities that Zoom brings to stay connected to people, both personal connections and professional connections. Um, so just yesterday, for example, I was able to attend different types of Zooms, um, one academic, one that was related to the publishing industry, since I am writing a trade book and I can talk about that more later. Um, and that's something that would not have been possible if you know things were happening in person, I would have had to make choices and I didn't necessarily have to. Um, so, you know, not that I would, you know, want to wish this pandemic on anyone and not that I'm minimizing the real crisis that it's it's brought to many people's lives, but that has been, you know, uh, an upside, just having access to that and doing things like Zoom cooking classes. I'm signed up for one of those this coming weekend. So that kind of stuff, Zoom happy hours, um, just living my entire life on Zoom, I guess. I guess we all really are on Zoom, Zoom o'clock at all times. <laughs> yeah, um, for better or worse. Yeah, for, <laughs> but I mean, I, I think it really is important for us to be able to find those silver linings as much as humanly possible. And it seems like you have been very successful about being able to pivot into the Zoom world and continuing to stay sane through whatever means that you can. Yeah, and you know, I do hope that some of what has been introduced because of this moment will continue to be part of how we operate and build connections and share our knowledge with one another because, you know, it would be a shame. And I know that maybe once things officially and fully reopen, people will kind of want to leave Zoom in the rearview mirror because they're just so fatigued by it. But I do think that there are really cool features of this this landscape that I hope will continue into the, the present. That's me being optimistic, but that's kind of my MO. No, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think that there is definitely going to be, hopefully there's some translation and we can stay connected a bit more to or feeling comfortable to connect with people all over the world and have that uh, experience of, of trying to share knowledge. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's and honestly, to that point, uh, Tamara, would you mind telling us a bit about your research? 
Sure. So I am an historian of Latin America, and the way I tend to describe my work, since it spans so many regions and time periods, is that I am interested in the history of slavery and racial formation in Latin America and their legacies in the modern era. And so I wrote a book, for example, on the relationship between slavery and dress in colonial Peru. It's a book called Exquisite Slaves and it was focused on the relationship that people of African descent had to self-presentation and the kinds of access they had or created to elegant clothing and how that served their their sense of, of self and their identities as husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and people who had identities outside of the legal status that was imposed upon them. And from that, I've started to move in other directions. I am doing research, for example, on blackness and visual culture in Latin America. And that kind of came out of my first book where I talked about this collection of paintings that were produced in Peru at the end of the 18th century and just what those paintings had to say about both images of and ideas about blackness in Peru. And I just got interested in kind of expanding the lens a bit more to think about representations of blackness and um, even whiteness in Latin America more generally. So I've got case studies involving Peru, Argentina, Mexico, and Brazil, all regions that have certain things in common but also differ from one another in really important ways. Um, and then beyond that, I'm also working on a project on slavery and seafaring in the Southern Pacific from Peru to Ecuador and other sites including um, Asia and across the Isthmus of Panama and across the Atlantic Ocean to Europe. So I'm really interested in, in that particular project and thinking about the experiences of enslaved people in the world of piracy and both their experiences as captives, people who were involuntarily thrown into this world, and their experiences as voluntary kind of my, migrants and, and pirates themselves and um, thinking about their their reasons for joining this world but also what they had to contribute to this world because they possessed linguistic knowledge that pirates themselves didn't have, geographic knowledge, and they, they served important roles uh, beyond manual labor. So just thinking about what slavery looks like when you take it outside of a land-based context and think about it in the seafaring context and also what, what freedom looks like in that context as well. So that's the, that's the kind of academic side of my work. I'm also currently working on a book on the history of African Americans abroad, which has nothing to do with my academic research, but sort of came out of my academic research as a black person from the U.S. who works on Latin America and who spends time in archives in Latin America and Europe and so is always thinking about and being reminded of my identity as a black American. And so this project, this book, is an opportunity to reflect on that and to reflect on the broader history that I am, am part of and the, the long tradition of African Americans um, moving abroad, living abroad, and also returning home from abroad. That's an important part of that story. So that's a different type of book that is still part of my intellectual project, but for a different audience, and it serves a, a different purpose for me as well, just intellectually and, and personally. Oh, that's incredible, uh, Tamara. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and in preparing for our conversation today, I, know, I read in your work that you 
you focus a lot on um, the ways in which gender has shaped the experience of enslavement and racialization uh, more broadly. So I was wondering if you could provide a few examples of um, you know, the intersections of race and gender within the context of your research. Oh, wow. I could give a ton of examples, but I guess the one that comes to mind most immediately has to do with a piece that I wrote for an edited collection called As If She Were Free. It came out in October of last year, and it's a collection of essays from, I think, 20-plus scholars, all of us working on gender and slavery in diverse contexts around the Americas. So there's folks working on Latin America and also the U.S. and the Caribbean. And my piece, at first, um, didn't seem to be a fit for the collection, at least the way I was initially thinking about it, because it was about a woman. This collection is really about, as the title suggests, black women and freedom in the Americas more broadly. And my case was about a woman who, instead of pursuing freedom, was trying instead to pursue a new um, owner, a new arrangement with a different slaveholder than the one that she um, had been in for, for several years prior to this case entering into the record. And in fact, it's her father, a free man, who was trying to ensure that his his daughter could find a new owner, which to me was really surprising um, in that the father was free and wasn't seeking for his daughter to, to gain her freedom. But she was also a new mother. She had a young child and was in this tremendously vulnerable position. And so thinking about her situation made me rethink the, the concept of, of freedom in an important way that we often think, and rightly so, that the historical subjects that we study, the individuals that we study, especially enslaved individuals, were concerned above all else with freedom in a juridical sense and also in a personal sense. And they were, but there were also really complicating and complicated issues that came along with, with freedom, that, that expectation that someone would be able to provide for themselves, to provide for their children without much in the way of material support or economic support. And so here was a woman who I still believe really valued the concept of freedom and wanted it for herself and for her son and had free people in her life who could show her the, the way, but at this particular point in her life was more focused on having some measure of stability for her son. And so it was really complicated to kind of think about this particular experience and to have it run up against some of my own ideas about slavery and freedom in a way that really challenged me as an historian and as someone who wanted to convey this story to a diverse audience in a way that didn't romanticize the condition of enslavement, but that also thought about what these terms meant, slavery and freedom, to the people who were living in this time and place and to complicate them for us in the way that they were complicated for them. Wow, that's quite the story that I had never even considered or that something like that would happen. I guess that, I guess trying to switch the way that we view freedom, but also that you know, priority of safety, I guess, in the, in the context of, of this young woman and then having her child and, and all that goes along with that. Yeah, and just to add a little bit more detail, in that particular case, the, the owners or enslavers that she was attempting to escape were tremendously abusive. They had inflicted so much brutality on her and she had attempted to run away 
And that, in fact, was the reason that she was kind of having the legal struggles that she was having because they had labeled her as a runaway that then imperiled her finding a new owner because these new owners didn't want to find themselves saddled with someone who was going to run away. And she had found um, a new owner at um, a religious facility. She had found a, a nun who was willing to purchase her. And all of this sounds really weird, um, I think, for, for folks who aren't familiar with the institution of slavery in Latin America, because it makes her sound as though she had more negotiating power than she actually had. But all that to say that she was trying to get out of this really violent household where both the, the male and the female slaveholders were inflicting violence upon her and find herself in a situation where she wouldn't be subjected to excessive violence beyond the violence that characterized the experience of enslavement in a way that would allow her to provide some safety and stability again for her, for her young son. While researching your work for this podcast, we came across a, a paper you wrote called Black Skin, White Uniform. Would you talk about it? Because I do find it to be relevant uh, to the necessary shift in imagery found of black people in media, um, especially since you know recently there has been a call for a number of different um, I guess companies to change the imagery that they use to be able uh, to market their products um, mm -hmm. and especially since you said that you were uh, that this is something that's interest that does interest you can you talk a little bit about that that paper yeah so it is focused primarily on this photograph that appeared in a Colombian lifestyle magazine um, or a life a Spanish language lifestyle magazine it's called Ola and it's the the counterpart of hello which is basically like a people magazine just a, a really kind of fluffy type of publication that's really interested in fashion and, and celebrity culture and things of that sort. And in 2011, Ola profiled this Colombian family and it was a multi-generational family and you could tell that part of the angle was kind of girl power because it was the great-grandmother, the grandmother, the mother and the daughter, all of whom had ties to the fashion and business community in, in Cali, in Colombia. And to showcase this family, they positioned the several generations of it on this balcony of their estate in Cali, and it had a really expansive view of the verdant valley beyond the, the terrace, and the terrace itself was really elegantly furnished. It was clearly a home of very wealthy people. And what caught people's attention when the magazine um, was when the issue was posted online was the fact that behind the mother, grandmother, daughter, etc., were two black women standing in profile holding tea service sets and wearing white uniforms. And to my mind, well, I should say that it immediately provoked controversy in Colombia and around the web because it circulated online. And in Colombia, people were criticizing the sort of decorative position that was occupied by these Afro-Colombian women who were not identified by name in this article. And that to me was really remarkable because it was a, a name-droppy article. They named all the women in the family, their husbands who were not included in the profile but who were nonetheless named. They weren't pictured in the profile but they nonetheless got their names included. Um, they named the designers of the furniture, of the clothing that the women were wearing. 
um, the art on the walls. And so the only people who go unnamed are these two Afro-Colombian women. Um, and so people pointed out the sort of decorative role that they played where they were denied their humanity. And so I came across it when it came out and came across some of the conversations surrounding it. And I just dug a little deeper when I decided to write about it and found that the, the matriarch of this family ended up taking a lot of exception to the criticism. And so she called into a radio show and she said that, you know, there was nothing that was um, wrong with this, this decision to include the women. And she said, if there's any message that is conveyed by their inclusion in the photo, it's that we serve the people of Cali and the people of Cali serve us. And so they were talking in the first instance about their business interests in this community in Colombia. And then in the second instance, obviously referring to these two Afro-Colombian women who the matriarch of the family referred to as chicas. And so she kind of uses this diminutive term, this term that refers to them as girls, um, despite the fact that they seemed like women in their 20s or 30s. Um, but we, again, don't know very much about them and can't really say with certainty how old they were because they were posing in profile. So there was a lot there that I just wanted to unpack. And the other thing that happened was that the photographer who was from Spain was also very dismissive of the criticism that, that came their way. And he said that, you know, people were making a mountain out of a molehill because they had taken hundreds of photos that day. And it just happened that there was a moment where the women came to serve tea and someone, he said, thought that that would be an interesting photo. Um, and you know, even if you take him at his word on that front, it is still interesting that of the hundreds of photos that were taken that day, that was the one that they decided to include. And for me, as an historian of slavery in Latin America, who's familiar with some of the tropes of the visual culture that emerged in Latin America in the 19th century and the 18th century in particular, it called to mind a lot of depictions of slaveholders and enslaved people that had circulated throughout Latin America and Colombia and the Andes and South America more generally, um, and also in, in Europe and in Spain, and that those are images that have been around for a long time that have circulated really widely. I can't imagine that they would have been unfamiliar to the photographer, to the women in the family, and so there was an evocation of that past, even if people weren't acknowledging it, and that you can draw really a, a straight line from the 18th century to 2011. So that's what I was interested in, just the historical dimensions of that, that photo and the story and the controversy around it and how that controversy also spoke to some of the enduring legacies of slavery in, in Latin America and in Colombia in particular. Yeah, and I really liked your point about um, girl power and how it's kind of like this media trope that's really selective for specific racial identities and it's not universal, uh, which is obviously not equitable or sustainable. Um, and with that being said, you know, as part of this podcast is that we want to, you know, bring attention to the amazing work that racialized people are doing within academia. So would you mind speaking on what your racial identity is and how um, that identity has shaped your experiences? Yeah, so I am Black American and it is really central to my having become an historian of Latin America to begin with. Um, when I was in college, as an undergraduate, I studied abroad in Argentina and had 
you know, in high school, studied Spanish, traveled to Mexico, and just been really interested in Latin America. So I found a way to study abroad there when I was in college and had a really difficult experience while I was there as a black person who stood out and who got a lot of weird attention while I was there and who was also doing research at the time on issues of multiculturalism and racism in Argentina and xenophobia in Argentina and was finding that even though I was having these experiences of racism and sexism and racialized sexism that there didn't seem to be an acknowledgement on part of Argentinians of their own experiences and histories of racism and, and slavery and xenophobia and instead whenever they talked about those those isms they were pointing to the U.S. as the site of them and the U.S. as a place that you know leads the world in racism and, and xenophobia and they had good reason to to use the U.S. in in those ways but it also became a way of distracting from their own experiences of racism and xenophobia so all that together just my experience doing research there and my experience just in my and my body there got me really interested in the history of, of race in Latin America. And I had originally actually planned to go to graduate school to study race in modern Argentina um, and found it actually really difficult to, to do for some of the reasons I've already pointed out that there wasn't at the time an acknowledgement of that history. So it made doing research really, really difficult um, and, and made kind of convincing people of the value of the, the topic I was interested in really difficult. And so I remember talking to my graduate advisor um, by the time I was getting my PhD. I went to the University of Michigan, just down the road from here. And my graduate advisor at the time said, well, maybe what you'll need to do is go back to a point in time where the presence of people of African descent was undeniable. And that usually means going back to the history of slavery where the black presence was always closely and carefully documented in so many records. So where modern Argentina, or at least the Argentina um, of my study abroad years, was denying a black presence and kind of dismissing any work that would think about the, the black presence in Argentina, it was, it was possible to go back to the colonial period and to the history of slavery to talk about uh, black presence and, and black experience. So that's how I ended up studying slavery in, in Peru um, for other reasons, but just in terms of moving to a different time period, that was kind of part of my, my process. But I, I've come back to these, these issues. I've come back to Argentina and my new work on race and visual culture in Latin America. I have come back to Argentina for this book on African Americans abroad and just my own experience there, because this book contains elements of memoir but also it is a history of African Americans who over the course of the 20th century spent time there. Um, and Richard Wright, for example, the author of Black Boy and Native Son, who we mostly associate with Paris, also spent time in Argentina. So I have been able to kind of go back to some of the, the early questions that were motivating me when I was studying abroad. But yeah, that, that experience was, was so central to my intellectual formation and continues to be because it's always out of some kind of personal experience or preoccupation that I am exploring particular research questions or, or topics for the books that I write.
I think it's really interesting for you to talk about, you know, denying uh, the you know black presence or, you know, denying racism within Latin America, because I do find that there are parallels to even Canada. Right. That there's the there's the denial that racism exists and it's something that, you know, people don't want to see, mm-hmm. although that there are, you know, there's plenty of examples of that you know that experience within Canada and it's not just as easy as just saying oh well it never happened well it's like Mm -hmm. all of these experiences have happened they have happened to people and Mm -hmm. the historical evidence is absolutely there Um, so one of the things is that uh, we, we always like to ask our guests is that you know what is your advice for people who want to have productive conversations about uh you know racism within Latin America uh, that you would like to share with our listeners? Oh, that's a good question. And it's a tough question because you're not always going to have productive conversations no matter how hard you, you try, um, in part because you often find yourself in conversations with people who are committed to misunderstanding you or to minimizing what you have to say about your experience. So I suppose the advice is recognizing when you're in a uh, uh, a dead-end conversation and when your interlocutor is committed to misunderstanding you, dismissing or minimizing what you're saying, or distracting you with irrelevant questions or insisting that you come up with incontrovertible evidence. Um, and you know, we see a lot of that play out on the internet um, where people just want to insist on on proof or evidence even though evidence abounds, proof abounds, right? We all live in a world filled with different types of documentation. But there are people who ask those questions, not because they're genuinely interested, but because they want to wear out the person they're talking to. And so I, I know that's not um, the exact sort of advice people might, might want, but I do think that there is something to be said for conserving one's energy, both physical, mental, and intellectual for those moments where the people that you're communicating with are actually committed to, even if they're not committed to agreeing with you, to having a reasonable conversation and a good faith conversation. Thank you for sharing your experiences and insights with us, Tamara. I think I can speak for both Joe and I when I say that I learned so much about um, the history of slavery uh, within Latin America, especially because it's not really something that we learn or talk about um, in the Canadian system. Um, so yeah, I really, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. Wow, that was an incredible interview with Tamara. I for learned sure. so much. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the big things that I took away from this was the discussion of imagery, um, and especially considering how you know Instagram, Facebook, and the image, or just you know media in general, and just how much it is a part of our life. And if we're not considering the imagery that we're looking at and calling it out for what it is, um, it can be problematic because, you know, there's so much, you know, racist imagery that still is is passed around today. Um, And I do think it makes a really big difference in our ability to um, to live in an anti-racist society, because, you know, if we're not going to be able to hold uh, each other accountable and to be able to. Uh, speak on it a bit more, then I think that we're just going to continue to just perpetuate this cycle. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think the racist imagery that we were discussing is really reflective of, you know, like the lasting impact of these really oppressive histories. Like while while they were in the past, they just manifest differently today. 
And I think the media and social media is a really good example of that. Um, and we also wanted to take a second and plug Tamara's podcast called Why We Wander, where she discusses all things travel, including the places people go, the experiences that have transformed their lives, and how the travel landscape is evolving to meet the demands of a changing world. She also features interviews with founders, documentarians, boundary pushers, and advocates, people leading the charge of transforming the who, how, and why of travel. We'll include a link to her podcast in the show notes. And now we'll hear our student highlight, Sunny Choi. Hi everyone, my name is Sunny and I'm a first year master's student in the Department of Medical Biophysics at the University of Toronto. I identify as Korean-Canadian and I use she-her pronouns. So today I'll be telling you a little bit about my research looking at neurological changes in pediatric cancer. The specific cancer that I'm studying is acute lymphoblastic leukemia or ALL. ALL is the most common cancer in children and it's diagnosed in about 300 Canadian children each year. Fortunately, the five-year survival rates of ALL are over 90%, and this is due to advancements in treatment. This treatment is achieved primarily through combination chemotherapy, which is delivered in multiple phases over the course of two to three years. And while this progress is amazing, there are still issues that we need to address. So after completion of chemotherapy treatment, cancer survivors are at risk for cognitive and behavioral impairments that decrease quality of life. Some of these late effects impact the brain, and around 40 to 60% of survivors experience cognitive problems affecting things like processing speed, working memory, and attention. By looking at brain structure using magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, my lab previously found that ALL survivors exhibit decreased volumes across most of the brain. My project focuses on investigating one common chemotherapeutic agent, methotrexate, as methotrexate is the backbone of ALL chemotherapy and seems to have both systemic and CNS-targeted effects leading to toxicity and altered neurodevelopment. The mechanism by which methotrexate induces toxicity and the mechanism by which methotrexate has an anti-cancer effect are separate. Therefore, the aim of my project is to target the toxicity pathway. Understanding the underlying mechanism of methotrexate's effect on cognitive impairments is necessary for determining the best future treatment strategy and may allow ALL survivors to have a quality of life similar to their cancer-free peers one day. Thanks to both Tamara and Sunny for their contributions to this episode, and we'll talk to you in two weeks with more exciting conversations. This podcast was brought to you by UTGSU's Race and Ethnicity Caucus Executive Team. The music was created by Christine Keon, and the artwork was created by Karen Fang and Kashana Danvers. And thank you to the rest of the executive team, Eileen Kagulata, Danica Chaharlangi, Miriam Karim and Sylvia Vong for all your support.